As I was driving here tonight to give this talk up Lockwood Road, there was a porcupine walking in front of the car. And if you know porcupines, they go very slowly. Uh, and I tried to pass the porcupine, <laughs> and I was beeping my horn because I was running late, and nothing made a dent. It's like, and I'm weaving one way, and the porcupine would go the other way. I'm watching the clock, and so um, I apologize for being a little late, but it was great. Uh, the porcupine accompanied me all the way down the road. And the talk is about patience (laughs) 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 and compassion and equanimity, which um, I wasn't always showing signs of as I was trying to get here. I want to begin with a poem by Stonehouse, the 14th century Chinese hermit. And the expression of pine or pine wind is a symbol of the, the Buddha's teaching. Four mountain postures. And remember the Buddha taught four postures, walking, standing, sitting, lying. So this is his poem about the four postures. Four mountain postures. Walking in the mountains, unconsciously trudging along, grab a vine, climb another ridge. Standing in the mountains, how many dawns become dusk. Plant a pine, a tree growing shade. Sitting in the mountains, zigzag yellow leaves fall. Nobody comes, close the door and make a big fire. Lying in the mountains, pine wind enters the ears. For no good reason, beautiful dreams are blown apart. So we have to plant the pine tree to hear the Buddha's teachings. And sometimes that takes great patience compassion, and equanimity. And if we have enough patience for the pine to grow and mature and to actually hear the wind in the pines, then maybe our beautiful dreams will be blown apart, our delusion about this world. When we consider the practice as a way of life, certainly it requires some time. We know that each moment of mindfulness is timeless. Present present time awareness is timeless. And in that, we have all the time in the world. But the maturing of the practice, no matter where we are, does take time. 
And I think of this process as learning to do the best we can and then letting go of control of the results. Learning to do this, learning to do the best we can wherever we are in the practice and then let go of control takes great patience, compassion, and equanimity. There's an <clears throat> old student of mine who, for the past eight years in her outer life, has really wanted a particular thing to happen for her. And she's wanted it so deeply, and it's so painful for her that it hasn't happened. And she keeps doing everything she can to make this thing happen. And her, her desire is actually a quite human and reasonable thing that she wants. But no matter how hard she tries, it doesn't happen. This happens in our practice. You know, we'll be wanting ourselves to go along maybe with more ease or more freedom than we do. And it's not so easy to be with things just as they are. And about four years uh, into this process of eight years with this student, I brought up the word patience with her. And I call it the P word now, because her reaction to the word patience was so intense. I mean, it was so significantly not the word she wanted to hear. You know, the huge reaction uh, was quite stunning. There was so much aversion, we couldn't even talk about it. Um, So I never brought the word up again. And recently, after four more years of her trying and trying to make this thing happen, and in so much suffering because of that, uh, she brought up the word patience one day with me. Uh, And it was such a shock for me that she brought the word up. You know, I smiled. And I said, oh, the P word, you know, (laughs) are we ready for this now? And she just started sobbing. Just the word patience for her, culturally, her conditioning is to think of patience as submission, or giving up, or passivity, futility, or denial. And so we actually could talk about that it didn't mean that, you know, that Patience does mean acceptance of how things are. It means acceptance of pain in the world. And it means accepting, doing the best we can, and then letting go of control, of results. And as we understand, on some levels, dukkha, that there's not much that we can control. So if we look at 24 hours in our day, and to understand that with each moment of consciousness, each moment one of our sense doors um, 
has contact with an object, simultaneously, not the next mind moment, but simultaneously with contact, there's a pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral feeling. And we have no control over that. And when we can just even intellectually grasp how vulnerable that is, you know, that stream of change is so intense. Uh, we start to get a sense of what dukkha means, that, that vulnerability that we all share as beings who take birth into this world. And so in a long retreat, we will start to get a sense of what a separate self is. So much of the practice is starting to investigate how does a separate self appear? And any time a separate self appears, it's an attempt at control. It's an attempt at manipulation. So a temporary moment of aversion, whether we're pushing away unpleasantness or withdrawing from unpleasantness with fear, is reacting to change and holding on to pleasure after it passes is reacting to change. And these are only temporary identifications. They're not permanent. And they're not really me or I or mine. So this student that I've mentioned has now begun the process of really looking at her conditioning around the word patience and seeing that patience or compassion or equanimity all have aspects of acceptance. And that, yeah, maybe acceptance isn't necessarily bad or submissive or giving up. Acceptance with a balance of non-identification when we don't take um, life personally, especially if we can bring some care or compassion into that, helps us not to shift into self-blame or blaming others when suffering appears. There's a great Ojibwe anonymous quotation that speaks to this. Sometimes I go about pitying myself when all the while great winds are carrying me across the sky. Have you related to your practice in that way today? You know that great winds are actually carrying you We can see in our practice how we do put in our time, and generally we are really doing the best we can. But things don't happen the way we think they should. It's incredible. And hopefully we are starting to face that. That is an aspect of facing dukkha. We're uncovering expectation. And in that process, we will often see self-pity, or blame, self-blame, or blaming others. 
wisdom is the lowering of expectation. In fact, a lot of the practice is the lowering of expectation. It's a letting go of control rather than controlling how life is. And this, this process of doing this with patience, compassion, and equanimity purifies the mindfulness. This will allow the exploration to be pure rather than to be colored with our own agendas of manipulation. Thinking that things should go our way is arrogance. And it means we're caught in that beautiful dream. I find an interesting place to look more closely at the process of patience, compassion, equanimity, all the elements of acceptance and practice, to the concept of path or progress in practice. The word path implies that we're going somewhere. And what's hard for us to remember is that we're going here. (laughs) That's all we're doing, is we're arriving here more fully. So there's a lot of P words. There's progress. There's path. There's patience. When Sayada Upandita first came to IMS, it was in 1984, and I sat here for three months with him. And I'd never been to Asia. I'd never um, sat that long with an Asian teacher. And I hadn't been in Burma yet. Uh, And in retrospect, having been in Burma, I understood a lot more about how Sayada Uh, did his talks, but it was all new to me when I was sitting with him in here. And I noticed that at the end of every talk, he would wish all the yogis to experience Nibbana. And he said it every night, night after night after night. Um, And I would notice that not only would it feel like it brought up a kind of striving and comparing for me, but I felt it was happening for most of the people in the room. So I felt it was my duty to share with Sayado <laughs> what I thought of this. <laughs> now, I have to tell you in retrospect that this would be an unthinkable thing to do if for someone to tell Sayado this in, in his own context in Burma, and he'd never been <laughs> out here. And here I am thinking it's my duty. Here's this East meeting West full time. So I came into my interview and I said, you know, Sayadaw, when you say that, it just really doesn't work. (laughs) 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 You know, and he just looked horrified, bewildered. It was like he'd never heard anything like this, you know. (laughs) And I... (laughs) proceeded to tell him how it could bring up so much doubt and comparing and worthlessness and, you know, didn't go over big at all. Now, in retrospect, having been in Burma, and I see that if you're in the womb, 
you hear the word Libana. I mean, you grow up with it. You're a child and you're in and out of the monasteries and nunneries. You usually ordain as a monk or nun. You're hearing path, progress. You're hearing Vipassana jhanas. You're hearing all of this stuff like you'd hear toothpaste, water, love, money. Yeah, I mean, it's like, it's a different cultural context. So it really helped me to be there and hear that that's what all the Sayadas do at the end of their talks. It's just what you do. And the Buddha (laughs) did this too. I mean, it was like this is what he was teaching. And he wasn't doing it to send people into self-hatred attacks. And he wasn't talking about progress to bring up the most loathsome, you know, self-worthlessness, you know, self-hatred. So we have to look at, you know, what was the Buddha's motivation? And it was really compassion. You know, that this movement toward deeper and deeper peace is happiness. Nibbana being the deepest peace would be the greatest wish for someone. So I find that for all of us, we have to figure out how we can relate to path, progress, patience. And part of the price of going deeper in practice is uncovering, striving, comparing, competition. This does come up. If you think of it as part of the drive to freedom, that you're going to go through the wanting towns, you'll go through the desire towns. As we go deeper, we can even smell when we're close to peace. And often more desire will come up. A deep yearning for peace will come up. The balance in practice here is extremely delicate. And we fall off the bike a lot because we get caught. And how we get caught is either we repress the anticipation or the expectation or that deep desire for freedom. I call that fake equanimity. It looks like equanimity. It looks like we're balanced. But actually, we've just repressed the wanting. And we're disconnected from what is happening because wanting is happening. Indulgence is getting caught in the wanting and wanting more than the wanting to be happening. We'll either want to get rid of it. There'll be aversion to the wanting. We'll go, oh no, this is going to ruin my practice. We're caught. Or we get caught in being, you know, so close. (laughs) We're the best yogi here. You know, whatever it is. But we get caught in either the repression or the indulgence. And it's only if the equanimity is present that the wanting will be okay. That desire for peace will be there. It's totally okay. And we're mindful of it. We're protected by the mindfulness. And we'll be peaceful with what is predominant. We'll flow with what's happening in the present moment. The wanting will take birth 
live and die just like a breath or a sound. Whenever there's a reaction in the mind to change, to unpleasant, pleasant, neutral, if we're mindful of it, we're in the stream of change. That's it. And it's so hard for us to see that because the mindfulness and the equanimity have to be so clear or we'll get caught in it. Sometimes it can be helpful when we're feeling like things aren't coming and going by themselves and we are getting caught to just remember the context of mindfulness, recognition, acceptance, interest, non-identification. It doesn't have to be a checklist, but usually if you're suffering, there probably isn't acceptance. Or there isn't an interest. There's that fake, that there's that fake equanimity or indifference. And then there's an identification versus seeing that it isn't I or me or mine. I find that for Western teachers that we tend to bend over backwards to not talk so much about path or progress. We tend to be very soft or gentle about it so we won't hurt anyone's feelings. But that's impossible, actually. Uh, And what is important is to understand, you know, what are we doing here? And do we have the patience to go through wherever we are to liberate ourselves? Because it's just where we are that that happens, not five years from now or two hours from now. It's like wherever we are, that's the place where we can get liberated. So if doubt appears, or comparing, or wanting, that's the teaching. That's what's predominant at that moment. So if one tends to bounce off of some of these words, like progress or path, what that is is a mirror for ourselves to look at where we get caught and to see more deeply worthlessness or striving or doubt. Because only because that's predominant. Ultimately, if we do get caught in comparing or doubt or worthlessness, it's getting lost in thinking. And if it doesn't happen around something like (laughs) progress or patience, it'll happen around something else. It's like that's where we get caught. One of the things that happened for me actually in that 84 course with Sayadaw Upandita was a lot of honest self-assessment and really seeing how much I wasn't mindful and learning to be patient with that 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 was okay. Acceptance, a very deep acceptance of that. And this requires a lot of patience and compassion. If we see that we're not protected by mindfulness a lot, then there can be more acceptance 
of indifference or in more acceptance of aversion and attachment. Because when we're not protected from, with mindfulness, that's what will be there. And that's just being human. That's what we do. So the indifference will feel like you're here and you're being equanimous, but the heart isn't connected. There's that thing that this woman was so afraid of, the passivity, the denial, the kind of submission. And if that's like, it's like it's a mild reaction to change. It's all, almost so mild we miss it. We open the newspaper and the heart closes. We can't face the pain, but we miss it. We might put the paper down, go our merry way, but we have missed being mindful of indifference. It's not that that closing is wrong or bad. It's just that we've missed it, and we've missed that we've disconnected. A more intense reaction is aversion or attachment. An example of this is if low energy appears in practice. Some of us call it sleepiness. So say we've been going along and uh, we're sitting and it feels like we've been really present and then there's a nod or maybe we're (laughs) pre-nodding. You know, we feel the energy go down. How do we relate to that? Recognition would just to be saying to ourselves, oh, low energy's appeared. How can I work with this? Remembering that mindfulness is that soft readiness for anything to happen. Anything is okay to happen. That's acceptance and patience. Indifference, or pretending it's okay that the sleepiness has appeared, we might have a thought. You're sitting there and it's like, well, I I don't care if sleepiness has appeared. But if it's fake, it's fake. We're pretending that it's okay. This is a mild reaction that we often miss. And if we miss it, it will feel like we're okay. It'll feel like we're equanimous and there'll be no investigation. Investigation is the light that goes in the mind and, and it's like, oh, what sleepiness? What can I be interested in this? Indifference is when we kind of start going to sleep. We, we close down. We don't even, we're not aware that we have closed off. We pretend we're accepting. It looks good to ourselves, yeah? We fooled ourselves. But it's really denial, passivity. And basically, we've given up. We often fall asleep <laughs> at some point. And if we've missed that whole process, we've, we will have reinforced aversion to a, a sleepiness or low energy. If we notice that indifference and there's some interest in it, we will do the best we can to be awake. We'll do the best we can to be interested in the low energy. 
And even if sleepiness gets more intense, it'll be okay. We do the best we can and then let go of control of the result. If we try too hard to stay awake out of aversion, we'll get angrier and angrier and we'll reinforce aversion. See how much we can learn from low energy. We can learn all about patience. We can learn all about (laughs) compassion, equanimity, identification. But see how we react to it. We think it's an obstacle rather than our ticket to freedom. Indifference can arise to all sorts of things. Say knee pain starts in again, or one of our chronic pains, or fear, or lust. We can be mindful that indifference appears if we're interested in it. But this requires a kind of um, subtlety in practice that's, that's very important. Of course, sometimes indifference isn't so subtle. Uh, a couple of years ago, Stephen and I had come back from, I think it was this course, but it might have been, we stayed for three months, but it, we had been away for a while, and we'd been away from home for a lot of the year. I had um, some rice cakes in the cupboard that um, had been up there for a long time, but I kind of forgot they had been up there for a long time. So we were in our kind of usual busy state, and for once, Steve went out surfing, and there was a, a young adult living with us at the time who is now a monk in Burma. <laughs> uh, so Stephen, he went out surfing, and I had a lot to do. I was hungry, but I didn't want to take the time to eat anything. So a rice cake seemed like a really uh, middle path to the situation. And just as an uh, explanation, I am, I am highly allergic to certain things. Usually it's cats, dogs, pollen, things like that. Um, so you get the picture. I have this long list of phone calls, and I have my rice cakes. And I'm dialing. I'm trying to do too many things at once. And I lift the rice cake up. I don't look at it, put it in my mouth, and I'm dialing. And my throat just starts closing up in a very fast reaction. And I pretend it's not happening. So I keep chewing. I swallow it. My throat's getting itchier and itchier. (laughs) It's closing up. I'm dialing the phone. I'm talking on the phone. I'm hungry, right? So I'm ignoring the increasing signs that death is approaching. Uh, I ate another rice cake. (laughs) And just as I was swallowing the next rice cake, I looked up at our bookcase, and there was a book (laughs) that was called Dying at Home. (laughs) And I thought, oh, this is a message here. Uh, I was having such an incredible allergic reaction you know, it was really fast, faster than bees, and bees really can kill me. Uh, so I decided I'd go lay down. You know, this isn't serious, right? I'm still in denial. This is when indifference can really get you in trouble. <laughs> I, 
I lay down, my throat is clearly uh, closing up. So I gave myself a shot. I mean, I have a little kit, and I can do that. Uh, and then I decided I'd better go to a friend who's a doctor just in case. And I left Steve this terrible note <laughs> that said, uh, can't breathe. <laughs> See you later. <laughs> then he found when he came back home. <laughs> Pretending that things are okay when they're not okay is the adult world. You know, it's like, it's so interesting, but all that pretending that aversion isn't happening, that attachment isn't happening, is a lot of what's happening in our 24 hours. And it's okay. It's a kind of resistance. Learning to be mindful of it makes it go from a big problem to no problem. Because we've connected, we've connected with the disconnection, and that's what's predominant in the present moment, and we'll arrive here again. An aspect of this process of moving from um, a kind of patience with where we are, which is acceptance, is also compassion. And compassion is an acceptance of the pain in the world. It's an acceptance of dukkha. The proximate cause for compassion is helplessness. And this is so important for us to realize that the reason that compassion can appear is if we tune into the helplessness of suffering within ourselves or others. The Buddha called it the quivering of the heart in response to suffering, but that's that quivering in response to helplessness. Finding a balance with compassion isn't always so easy. So if we empathize with pain, sometimes we'll go in too close to it, we'll get in the core of it, and we'll drown. Or the other way that we can go is to back off from it and back off and back off and we've disconnected. Being able to have the willingness to touch the pain with a care, it's like a light care, helps us to understand how we can work with the suffering in our own practice with the dukkha of life and in this world. When I first learned what this light care was, I wondered who left it out of the curriculum. You know, how can we live in this human world and get to whatever age we are and learn compassion? It's absurd. It's a crime. (laughs) It's ridiculous. It's uh, hard to believe. Learning how to connect with helplessness, to not drown, but not to step too far back, requires patience and equanimity. We will develop a gradual skill in learning to deal with dukkha if we add in in regard to our options compassion as well as mindfulness.
just to remember it's okay to care about the pain if we can't be mindful of it. I have a, um, I had a dear student um, several years ago now that was just about to die and she called me and asked me to come see her. And she was an incredibly devoted student of Zen and Vipassana and had worked really hard at the practice and felt that she hadn't gotten enough. You know, she felt like she hadn't attained enough. And just before I arrived to see her, another teacher who she loved had been to visit with her and kind of pressed her to tell him, you know, what was she learning and did she get it somehow. Uh, And I went in to see her several hours later and she was devastated. And she was just about to die. And this was sort of like the last thing I wanted to happen for her in her practice, in her life, to be in the state just before she died. For me, I was um, (laughs) finding it really hard not to go into aversion and to just find that care for the unbearability that I was feeling, not just her. It was like I was feeling that helplessness in regard to her suffering. And I felt really grateful that I had learned this practice and that I could care for my own reaction and then get there. And I told her how I was feeling. You know, I just said, I just can't bear that you are about to die and you're feeling like your practice is worthless. Your practice is incredible. Um, And because I had said that, she realized that her mother had never told her she loved her in her whole life. It was like she finally got it. (laughs) Uh, And we were able to talk about that, what was missing, and connect with the love and the compassion. And she was okay. Now, if the word progress or path brings up that kind of experience, we have to look at there must be some kind of lack of compassion, of metta, of love. And if we have a reaction, we need to remember to tune into the helplessness of our own suffering and respond with care. It's not an outer problem, you know, it's an inner problem. And I can assure you that if you start with this bit by bit, you'd be amazed at how much the quality of compassion can start to come into your mindfulness practice. It's like for me, at first they were split. And there was often a coldness to the observation of the mindfulness. And as I started to do the compassion practice, that quality of care started to come into my practice around difficult times. And it really shifted my practice. 
One of my greatest teachings is the autumn leaves. And we're at that peak of um, gold. It's like we're living in a gold palace. The Buddha taught about the evanescence of all living things, the impermanence. And if we can really see the beauty of the leaves in autumn, but also accept that they will disappear and that we will disappear, the observer and the observed will disappear, we'll start to understand dukkha on deeper levels. We don't have to just get caught up in the beauty. I find that there is something so exquisite about the leaves turning gold. It's like as they die, they're giving all the sunlight back to us. It's like a metaphor for letting go of everything, letting go of control of everything, giving us back so much beauty. That's what's happening every moment. If we're mindful, if we have patience, compassion, equanimity, we start to deepen our understanding of that. Compassion is a wonderful feeling. It's actually a pleasant feeling. And when compassion is at its strongest, we can ask for caring for all the pain in this world because we're not overwhelmed by the helplessness of it. We're in balance. And what brings the balance is the acceptance of pain. It's care with understanding. And I find this time of year to really help with the inspiration to understand this. It does require patience and equanimity. If you listen to your own mind for five minutes or an hour, and then multiply that by everybody in this room, you might just Take a whole day. (laughs) Take a whole day of listening to your own mind. And look around the room and get that inside everybody's head, similar things are happening. (laughs) If you could hear just one sitting in this hall on a loudspeaker, it would be deafening. And the suffering would be unbearable. Truly, the judgment, the cruelty. And then try to multiply that by every human on the planet. And hopefully, you'll have some patience with your practice because we're all in the same boat, going up the same river 
doing the practice. It takes so much patience, compassion, and equanimity. Ultimately, the mindfulness as a soft readiness for anything to happen is the antidote for dukkha. Anything can happen, so a soft readiness for anything to happen is wisdom. But really learning that, learning that the practice is the intention to understand rather than to judge, and to have that really sink in because we're so vulnerable to wanting more than what's happening. We're so vulnerable to the disappointment of expectations not being met. So we have the soft readiness as a rudder, and then the patience and the compassion and the equanimity are what keep us going with some kind of balance through the face of the dukkha. And one way to describe that with one sentence would be that we really do the best we can and then let go of control of the result. That's wisdom and compassion all in one. I'd like to end with a quotation from Sayadaw Yodaka from Burma. And this is very simple. It's so purely simple, but quite profound. I don't want judgment. I want understanding. I am not perfect. So I am scared of those who are judgmental. I want to be left alone. I've done a lot of unwholesome things in my life, but I don't blame myself or others. It's impossible not to have done anything unwholesome. I am trying to practice Dhamma, and I'm happy about that. Can you see yourselves being here just like that? It's impossible not to have done anything unwholesome. I am trying to practice Dhamma, and I'm happy about that. So if you have that happiness, you can do the best you can and let go of control of the result. Let's sit for a minute.
May we be free from suffering. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.